right. I was speaking to Dr. Edgar Albert, who is a consultant orthopedic surgeon. He works by a tangerine place. Uh, this place is called Tangerine Orthopedics. He's a very wonderful orthopod and very wonderful person when it's training and otherwise and so many other connections. Just a good resource, a good person, a good individual. And I'm so pleased that you agreed to this ego. I know you. So I was just saying you're a little busy, but I'm glad we made it here, you know. So I, I just had wanted to ask a few things from the vantage point of of really a general practitioner. I'm hoping that this conversation is not only interesting for us as doctors, but as well for the general public. So that's the whole point of these things, to really more for the public. And I, I'm trying not to get too technical, but I'm hoping that it, it will be accessible in some way. I've been getting out of, and it's ongoing, and uh, you would know this, but a lot of people with back pain that I really don't know what to do. And I, I think the, the, the diagnostic conundrum for me is many and varied. And so maybe I should start us out by asking you if, when would a patient be best sent to somebody in your area? That is at what time? So you have your severe back pain and I would have probably at least tried something and then returned, perhaps I've even done an x-ray. And that x-ray a lot of time, uh, to use a typical example, is oftentimes normal, very little changes on it so uh, that from that standpoint how do you feel about that so back pain is definitely um ubiquitous to humanity is what i would call it and i think not only have our patients suffered from back pain but we as individuals physicians including have suffered from back pain from time to time so at what point is it that um we intervene so I find that some of the traditional algorithms that I use or that were used have been challenged because we have so many players in um, practice nowadays. I think that's probably the best way to call it or identify it. We have the general practitioner, um, we have the chiropractors, and we have the physiotherapist. And so what would normally happen as your first line of management would normally would be a expected to interface with a doctor who's a general practitioner. And the, the role of the general practitioner in um, coming across your back pain assessment in, from a historical point of view is to try and identify, is, this, um, is there a secondary cause for the back pain? Are there any red flags? <clears throat> and so it is through history that we should really be able to identify, okay, what is serious? Because all, all back pain sometimes, or most back pain presents to us and a person is incapacitated, debilitated. And we are going to offer them some kind of, of analgesia, some kind of relief. But in doing so, we kind of want to segregate the ones who might have a secondary cause. And by secondary cause, I'm not talking about the degenerative change or the um, acute herniation per se. But the secondary causes, all the other things that can lead to your back pain. So the referred pain, the pain that's coming from an infected cause, a metabolic cause, you know, 
a secondary deposit from a primary. These are all things that we kind of want to be on the lookout for. What are the other things that can masquerade as back pain? You know, is this person someone who is in the, the age range where we should be considering a metastatic from, say, prostate, lung, thyroid, or any one of the other things, the common causes? So I think when I see a patient, um, my history is always directed towards that, you know. So you rule all those things from a historical point of view, and then you kind of get into to the, the, the details of the back pain that's presenting to you. It, I, I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. Um, quite often when we see someone um, if they, and the history has no red flag signs, it is not unreasonable to treat them with medication and see if they will settle down. And at that initial setting, you can make a determination of whether you want to send them for physical therapy or not. So there are some treatment algorithms that include treating with physical therapy and analgesia first in the four, first four to six weeks. And if it doesn't resolve, that's when you should start doing and including more investigations because the majority of, of the back pain that we see, what I call, you know, the, the garden variety back pain that walks into your office on four o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> you know, really does not have something sinister to it. And once you rule out the sinister component through history, there's no history of fever. There's no history of chronic cough, you know, there's no history of, of, of breast carcinoma or, or, or lump or change in your diet or appetite or any of those what we call classic red flag signs, night sweats, you know. Um, then you can go ahead and offer that person analgesia. And my go-to is usually some form of what I call multi-drug cocktail. Um, so... You'd find me myself using something from an NSAID, um, inclusive of paracetamol, um, and I would add to that something with codeine. If the person has any ridiculous symptoms, meaning they have any nerve root irritation, um, whether it be hyperesthesia, dysthesia, um, numbness, anything of that nature, then I would also include a neuromodulator, something like gabapentin. Um, gabapentin is my workhorse drug, but clearly you can use other agents that are newer. I find um, gabapentin to be one step up from amitriptyline, works in a different way. Some doctors still like to start off with amitriptyline. I find the drowsiness associated with it is just a little bit too much. And whereas I do think um, some of the other things like pregabalin uh, work just as well, the, the dosing my ability to modify the dosing just just not the same because of the the pharma pharmaceutical presentations that are available in the market. Um, you know, pregabalin, as you know, is 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 also marketed as as Lyrica and stuff like that, and it it normally comes in some markets as twenty five, fifty, seventy five, one fifty, and above. In our market, the, the lowest dosing that they bring is seventy five. If someone needs to be treated with that, you can't go less than 75. And that's, I find it to be one limiting factors. Hence, I stick with gabapentin. Um, I have extensive experience with it. It's now regu um, fairly regularly available and affordable. That's what I would say.
and I play around with the dosing to tailor the needs to the individual patients. Is there also the, the muscle relaxants at this stage? You know, or... so th- th- that's something that's also very controversial as far as I'm concerned. So a lot, a lot of times back pain presents with um, muscular spasm. And um, the muscular spasm, I've always said, is really a spinal reflex, if you think about it. Um, and it really is the, the muscles in spasm because of that reflex. So do I really want to cause relaxation without addressing the underlying pathology? And some people would say, yes, but muscular spasm is a pain generator. And that may be true. But I tend to avoid the muscle relaxants. And I tend to focus on a multi-drug pain modality. And I've found that this works for me. Um, there's another very potent category of, of drugs that can be employed. I really, truly think that sometimes it's probably best to be left in the hands of the, 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 the secondary caregivers. Um, that, and that's introduced when you start introducing what's the role of steroids. Uh, the oral or injectables. Um, unfortunately, sometimes we have, uh, um, I think it's important in your treatment algorithm of someone who has back pain, lower back pain, um, to distinguish through your history and the, the patient's uh, clinical course, what is that ideal time to, to refer. So let's talk about investigations. I think... Um, depending on the patient's age and, and the history, it's not unreasonable for you to do some baseline investigations. And this would include bloods, um, complete blood count, um, BUN, creatinine, and electrolytes. If you have any doubt, you should do the ESR um, and or the CRP. And if you have a high index of suspicion, this high index of suspicion can be either from an X-ray that you did or just that you think this person may be a presentation and is within the category of possibly, say, multiple myeloma, then you could do the proteins to see if you have, you know, some, some abnormality there. It takes nothing away from you to go back and re- do the, the investigation as a secondary rather than ordering a battery of tests because the investigations have gotten quite expensive. Hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure what it is now, but the last time an executive panel or something like that is approaching somewhere between twenty eight and forty thousand wow. dollars. So some of these investigations they they add up. Um, by you know we do know that less than five percent of back pain is going to show up on a plain X ray unless there's a history, definite history of like say trauma. If you think the, the back pain might be coming from say, an underlying scoliosis, even though the, the, the literature says that scoliosis doesn't cause back pain, my experience is that the patients do have far more discomfort. Maybe we're, maybe someone's definition of pain is discomfort, but they do have more presentations. Um, if someone has a scoliosis, they complain of more back discomfort and pain. Um, so I'm going to lump that as something which you might find um, on a plain x-ray. I would have to say the majority of the back pain that we have, a plain x-ray does not help. Um, So I think an MRI has become the standard bear of investigation. 
and and an MRI is a very sensitive tool. I think you need to always have very good clinical correlation and not use it as what I call the shotgun approach. An MRI is such a sensitive tool that when you do an MRI, you almost are certain sometimes to find pathology. But does that pathology clinically correlate with your presentation? And if you are not astute, then you can start, end up, you know, going down some rabbit holes in terms of offering treatment and therapeutics on something that's not the clinical presentation. So I still think you need to have a good understanding of how the back pain is going to present. Is this something that's coming from what we call a so-called back sprain? Because we see a lot of that in like, say, a traumatic environment coming from road traffic accidents. That's going to come to your doorstep. Um, You know, and a lot of times those x-rays, plain x-rays are normal, but they are necessary step to rule out to ensure they are normal. Because you don't want to be sending someone to physical therapy when you have actually dealing with a, a fracture, a lumbar fracture, undiagnosed lumbar yes. fracture. You know, that's what we mean by getting egg on your face. Yes, yes. Um, there are other times now, depending on the patient, they may have a degenerative, um, you know, facet or a lot of arthritic changes in the, the, the lumbar spine. And that will be apparent on a plain x-ray. Um, there's more to that story that will come up on an MRI, but we can get into that that aspect of it. So I think an MRI can be a standard bearer in your workup along with some blood investigations um, from what I would call that of a general practitioner. And I think it's reasonable to probably keep someone for four to six weeks. If the person is not responding at that time and you have an MRI in front of you, is the time when you need to start now making contact with your colleagues who you would usually refer to if the mri is normal then also that's probably when you probably should start saying okay is there something in the history that i'm missing do i want to continue the investigation or should i refer this pain on um and you know your history really is what guides you to to finding out what's happening what what makes this person not resolve and it doesn't take anything away from you to go back and actually just go through and do a more thorough review and, you know, get the addendum information from your historical, from a historical point from your patient. I can't tell you how many times I've been through um, thinking I've gotten a thorough history just for someone to come and say, oh, yes, by the way, my mom has rheumatoid arthritis. You know, that just all of a sudden kind of opens up the real reason that they're not getting better and despite what you're throwing at them, is not working. And you do a rheumatoid panel and then something comes back positive. It, it, it happens all the time. Patients can sometimes conveniently forget family history. Mm-hmm. So a proper history technique and um, a thorough history, especially ruling out red flags, I think is, is, is primary in your assessment and um, your diagnosis and management of these patients. If you come back and, and the MRI says you have pathology that requires specialist care, then I think that's fairly obvious. Yeah. You know, that, that, that referral is, is an easy one. But it's the ones that are a little bit more subtle, I think, that are more challenging. Yeah, a, a couple of things. With the, the ones even that come back, you know, and um, 
concerned. I, I always like to refer, well, you know, refer to you because I, I'm, I, I, my viewpoint is that you examine musculoskeletal system far more and far better, I would assume, than, I mean, even though I did have some experience in working a little bit at uh, program level, and it, it uh, that experience would not be as, as robust as a consultant or a partner, especially, you know, one of your caliber, in the areas that have been in practice. So that's why I prefer... So, you know, here, here's one of the things that I've always come to understand, uh, Brian. Experience is really um, something, you know, you can have people who are in practice and um, they, they just have a nose for detecting the patients who have multiple myeloma. Or, you know, they just they, they have this ease of being able to differentiate when the back pain that they're seeing is not coming from a spondylogenic but come from a gallbladder. That that oh, that gotcha. index of suspicion. So I never ever like to take away from the primary care, which is some. I have a little bit of concern of the chiropractic rule, and when the patients go to the the physiotherapist, because my experience is that the physiotherapists start treating. You know, everybody who comes in, they start treating. But I'm not quite sure if they have that real ability to go through like a, an experienced general practitioner, do a proper history, do a proper examination, and actually maintain the differentials that need to be ruled out because not every back pain that comes is actually from a musculoskeletal origin. Mm. And I think that's where we are somewhat in a privileged position. So by the time I see the patient in many instances, they've been screened for me by a general practitioner and the general practitioner has kind of like fed me patients that allow me to easily offer treatment and treatment modalities. Okay. If you understand what I mean, yes, uh, yes, because yes. they have kind of taken away some of the other things that I would, I just would not normally see. The the role of the uh, those general inquisitive your view, the role of the chiropractor in 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 the medical oh. landscape. It, it, you know, I, I, I'm going to tell you, um, I, I, it it is something that I still I'm, I'm unable to completely define the role. Um, we have in our community invited them to, to present at our conferences and, and, and be part of a more mainstream um, medical ongoing learning and, and stuff like that. And um, in, in the instances that we have interacted with the chiropractors, I've been a little bit disappointed in some of the modalities and algorithms that they use. So I treat it somewhat as I do massage therapy. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to be condescending in any way, mm. but I am unable to, to fully discern what it is that they do. So I treat it like a treatment modality. Um, you know, a lot of times and a lot of doctors will send patients to physical therapy and they, 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 they actually don't understand what the role of physical therapy is. I think I've kind of... Um, broken it down and I understand what it is that I want a physical therapist to do. Um, in a lot of instances, back pain is, is as a result of deconditioning of the musculoskeletal system. It is a product of our modern living. It is a product of our sedentary lifestyles and it's a product of us, oh, excuse me, um, 
not not being true to our our form. And what I mean by that is back pain sometimes comes as a failure of proper conditioning of the muscles Mm -hmm. and any form of aerobic exercise. And if you look at physical therapy, physical therapy can be broken down into several components. Mm -hmm. So physical therapy tries to use pain modalities to get over your initial pain, muscle spasm, and then try to incorporate you into some kind of exercise program. Mm -hmm. An exercise program can be broken down into core strengthening and some aerobic conditioning. Now, when I send someone to physical therapy, I'm not sending them for pain control necessarily because I'm going to use pharmaceutical agents to get the pain control. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually sending them for physical modalities, not sending them to get tens machines, which you can buy now on Amazon for 30, mm-hmm. 40 bucks mm-hmm. and show a patient how to use. I'm not sending them to get heat or cold. I'm not sending them for pulse um, magnetic waves. I'm sending them for physical exercise. Oh, and, and, and that's what I expect. So when I send a patient to physical therapy, when they come back, I actually ask them, what did your physical therapy entail? And I usually specify what I want, but I find out from the patient what it entails. And if the physical therapy is going to be taken up with tens and massage and heat and and, and cold, then I know this is not therapy that's going to really benefit the patient in the long term, long run. Because what I'm looking for is someone who can build their core strength, build their um, aerobic strength, their aerobic ability to have a better posture, to be more active. That's where you actually get the benefit of the physical therapy. And this is why you could refer to a physio versus, as I say, not being negative to a chiropractor because we're not 100% sure what exactly occurs and what. In, in my hands, in, right. in my hands, yes. That's, that's, that's been a, my experience. Do, do, do you, because I get asked this, I, I would, my patient's going to tackle me if I don't ask you this. What do you think of reflexology and what's it, acupuncture so, and all these sorts of things? So there's a, there's a definite role for um, acupuncture and some of the other modalities. Now, I tell my patients this, um, Brian. Mm-hmm. I'm a formally trained Western doctor and surgeon. And I don't claim to have expertise in Eastern medicine. And Eastern medicine is a different discipline from Western medicine. And so you're not going to come to my office and I'm going to be the one offering you a lot of supplements and a lot of Eastern modalities. I do think there's a role for it, but I cannot truly tell you how to incorporate that. I treat them as treatment modalities. I ask that you, um, if you're having any more other modalities in parallel with what I'm offering you, just to disclose it so I can know if there's any side effect or counteractivity. I would never tell someone not to go and get acupuncture. But if I am dealing with someone who I can see and define through my Western training that you have spinal stenosis or foraminal stenosis, whether it be acute or acquired on a chronic degenerative basis or you have a spondylolisthesis or, you know, there's 
an osteoid, osteoma, or some recognized pathology that we can see, that this is probably not the ideal thing to be treated in a, an Eastern medicine thing that I'm not as experienced with. But an interesting part of that, um, Ryan, is this. I now firmly understand my role through experience, what my role is in the health sphere. So when someone comes to me, they come to me for a consultation. And what does a consultation mean? It means that I am going to use through the best knowledge and experience that I have through taking a history, physical examination, whatever investigations that I have available, and I'm going to offer a contemporary solution. That contemporary solution may involve, as you say, you know, the use of physical modalities like physical therapies. It It may involve the use of a nutritionist. It may involve into another specialist like a rheumatologist. It may involve some kind of pain medicine intervention like an epidural steroid or radiofrequency ablation for, you know, facet joint pain. It may also include a psychiatrist or psychologist because the person has entered into chronic pain. Mm. That's part of my assessment to see the, the, what, what the genesis of the pain is. And it may actually also need surgery. And sometimes after surgery, when the surgery fails, I may still need to go back to some of my other partners because you have things like failed surgery, failed back syndrome. Um, We may have to go back to some of these other modalities. That's what I've come to understand my role is. And what I do is I make a recommendation. Uh, The patient has that right and ability to choose to still after having had that input to a trial of chiropractor manipulation or decide to go for acupuncture, that's fine. Because we're now dealing, you have to understand, I think medicine, we're kind of under the gun. Mm. We're in the information age. I sometimes tell people things in my office and they're at the same time Googling and fact checking what I'm telling them. But I also incorporate into my practice giving patients websites to read more on their own condition, read up on the treatment algorithms. Sometimes I will bring it up on the screen in my office and say, okay, this is a condition that I think you have. This is the information that's available on a reputable site. And this is a treatment algorithm. And sometimes the treatment algorithm that I've brought up is very similar to what I've just told the person. And I would say, okay, this is a stage that we're at. And try to garner their confidence from that approach. In other words, there's nothing that I'm doing that's not available. I strive for um, treatment modalities that I consider to be contemporary. If you go to another orthopedic surgeon, I just had a consultation yesterday mm-hmm. and the person had come to me for a second opinion, but they hadn't told me. And it was through the history when I was trying, they had an MRI and I said, oh, who ordered the MRI? And they said, oh, it was another orthopedic surgeon. And I said, oh, so what did the orthopedic surgeon say to you? And they said, they would rather not say, they want to hear my opinion first. So I went through and I did just that. I did an examination. Then I looked at the imaging and I said, this is what I think you have. This is what I think you need. 
And then I said, so what did my colleague say? And they say, he said the very same thing. And I said, that's what I hope for. That's what I strive for. Yeah. Because really and truly, if we're looking at the same information, yeah. we really shouldn't have very different ways of treating the same thing. Exactly. The, <clears throat> you, you hit many points there, Edgar. In fact, with, I try to do that as well. In fact, even up to today, I, I just pointed out something. I pulled it up on my phone or somebody with hypothyroidism and said, well, we can do this because, and I, I showed her, I think it could have been WHO or CDC or one of these name sites, which, you know, and so it knows into a TikTok video and, you know, this, you know, to, to go there a little bit, the social media is very wonderful. And for example, this wonderful discussion we have in here, I hope to post it on some forum. But some aspects, it, it's like I can't compress the whole of what I'm going to tell you in 60 seconds. It's going to be, and then therefore, some things, the way the internet works is the, 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 the more fantastic things tend to rank higher. So if you, you know, you can, you're going to grow a third eyeball, well, as I said, well, maybe you'll find one person in humanity that has that, but there's not it's just not a common thing. So with a little, this is where we come in. You, you know, there are these memes that say you, you can't read and compare that to my five years of really arduous, you know, depending on which medical school and training. So it, yes. it and, you know, it, it's, it's a challenge, but it, 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 it's hard to sift through the good and the bad and to sort of direct. And this was evident in COVID in my view, you know, it's it's like uh, one of my colleagues. It was and I'll say his name. It's oh dear, Ramon Ramon Scott was on one of these programs. I think talking about immunization and and uh, and uh, you know very thorough just about COVID and that never got a lot of views in my view. And then they, they these fantastic things. So on some of these that had to be pulled down at ten ten times and more sort of views so it's really a great it's just a great challenge well, it's just, but, it, but it's the way it, of the world right now it, it is it is and so one of the things that I, I try to do I try to see how I can steer my patients towards literature that I consider to be mainstream and contemporary and I think that's probably the thing um, I try and, 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 and I am one of these people in my profession that I actually am not intimidated by a second opinion. And um, I freely say to someone, you know, feel free to get my second opinion. Sometimes the second opinion really is for the patient's own, um, how should I put it? No, it's for their own confidence. Mm. Or I told this girl recently, she is 44, 45. She's a dancer and she had bilateral hip arthritis and she just refused to believe. Um, she's like, That's, that can't be. Um, she presented with back pain and the reason for her back pain was her bilateral hip arthritis. And as soon as I started examining her, I said, you don't actually have a back problem or you have the back problem you're having is secondary to another problem. The problem is with your hips. We got an x-ray and there it was. 
Um, and she refused to believe. And I said, well, you know, you have the right of a second opinion. You can go and see another um, doctor and hear their opinion or get their opinion. But I firmly believe that her back pain was secondary to her osteoarthritic hips, which at age 44, she didn't recognize to be a problem. So, again, it comes back down to what I said. History, examination, and um, any time you feel that 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 thing where you know I can get away with just um, the history and the investigations is where you start getting tricked. It's sometimes you know someone will tell you an incredible story, and the moment you go back there and you you start examining the patient, you but this is completely different. You know, this is so obvious. This this is a completely different presentation or where they're calling back is actually not back, but you know, they're they're it's their hip or some other part. So we assume because we've been formally trained that patients are speaking the same language as us when they complain of um pathology in a body part. And it's only when they start showing you, you recognize they're talking about a completely different body part. Yes, yes, that's it. Yes, you know? exactly. Like leg so, and arm and that kind of thing. Yes, yes. yes. And that's yes. a very common Jamaican thing. Yes. So it, it just always is prudent. Just go back and examine the patient. Just have the patient show you exactly where they're talking. Have a look. Utilize your experience. And then you will usually find that something pops up, something that you can relate to. You mentioned something that, uh, well, well, you never mentioned, I should say, in your analgesics. Do you like narcotics? Do you, or even the, that pseudo narcotic? So, 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 so I gauge my narcotic use is, is somewhat related to my subjective interpretation of the amount of pain that you're having. Um, so if somebody comes in and I think they have mild to moderate pain, I will start off with, with, with codeine. So panadine as the combination agent with an NSAID plus or minus, uh, a neuromodifying agent is, it would be my cocktail. Now, if the patient's pain, if the person came in and they were already on something like that, then I would think of starting to add something different. And my go-to drug would usually be something like tramadol or tramacet in terms of um, the, the combination. So I would use panadol and tramadol, or I would use tramadol and acetaminophen in the combination of something like, say, tramacet. Mm. Um, sometimes I don't necessarily love the combination drugs because you can end up getting to the maximum of one without maximizing the other. But I find the patients sometimes give you better compliance when they don't have a lot of pills to take. And I usually am fairly, uh, because I am acting in the role of a specialist, and I really, um, I don't want to say the buck stops with me, but certainly I, I should miss far less than my colleagues. I actually don't want to miss at all. I will definitely... Um, go over the history, definitely review the, the images myself, look at the report from the the, 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 um, the radiologist. And if I'm in doubt, I sometimes pick the phone up and I will discuss the, the imaging with the radiologist 
if I think there's something in doubt or if there's something that they have missed. Um, and I definitely always try to have and formulate a plan. So sometimes within that plan can be the incorporation of a discussion with another colleague, a pain medicine colleague that I work along with. Um, sometimes we can try what we call diagnostic blocks to see if the pain generator is coming from the same place that we think. So I would say even though a lot of patients that I see probably may benefit from surgery, maybe only 10 to 20% of them will probably end up having surgery. Um, and that's from several reasons. Cultural, um, definitely. Um, the Jamaican populace do not like the idea of back surgery. And their family members and loved ones will usually tell them not to engage in back surgery. Um, and, and back surgery is not without its complications. You know, it, you really are sometimes working around nerves and, 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 and neural tissue. And, and there is a recognized complication rate when you're doing that, depending on what you're doing. Um, but with, with that being said, there are a lot of people that can benefit from back surgery if the surgery is indicated and if you define what it is you're trying to achieve and as you can identify and have the patient understand what I call managed expectations. So if we decide to operate on a certain level because of a particular problem, you have to understand that you may have pain from other sources that are also other levels that are degenerative. We chose not to operate on those because in a cost-benefit analysis, it wasn't prudent to do so. Mm. But it doesn't mean that having had an operation that you don't also have pain from other sources. And that's a very interesting um, aspect of care to get across to your patients. So I like to say it's, you have to manage expectations. Yes, it, um, it, it, and all it, surgeons will have complications. Um, and that's part of what we need to manage within the profession. It, it, it's as, as uh, when I was doing my time there, that was something that even when I was working with you guys, uh, that I said the mark of a good surgeon is is when trying not to operate. You do your best not to. And then when it's time to, you do, and you do so uh, as soon as you can. And what what I had wanted to ask as well, the in terms of, to give an example, which I don't know if the patient got to, this woman, I know she was over 70, she could have been near 80. And she was having really awful low back pain and she had her MRI in her hand. I think she went to hospital and something occurred. I think they sent her for MR and she was feeling bad, so really terrible. So she decided to come and I could see even in my untrained because she never had a report and my machine actually still has a CD-ROM, luckily. <laughs> so I was able to see that there, there was a little disc prolapse there in the, it could be in the L1, L2-ish region and really complaining that areas and I said well I'll do the best I can and she said she wanted some relief immediately I said well where this is headed typically which well you can correct me is 
you would need some kind of injection in this area. I was referring to the steroid injection to help her at minimum and perhaps even more because, I mean, she could, she was having problems sitting up and this kind of thing. In fact, she wanted to come and see you at that instant. I said, well, I don't know if you're in your office. And you have to remember this gentleman is a private practitioner. So, you know, you have to bear all of those. And so they're, really, they're having that whole discussion about going back to university and all of that. So I'm just wondering, in, with that sort of a patient, do you really, that kind of awful pain, do you jump to that even in your office? The, those sorts of intra-articular injections and blocks and these things. So, so I, I, I consider, um, you know, you have, you have what we call pain modalities that you can do, and some of them can be done blind. Um, some of them can be ultrasound-guided. And then some of them are image guided with, like, say, a, a C arm, where you mm -hmm. use fluoroscopy. Um, and you kind of have to gauge the patient and when it is that you're going to utilize these modalities. Um, any kind of intervention, especially with a injection, what we call, um, you know, a, a, a like a pressure point or a, a pain a pain point um you have it, it that comes with some experience and with some training um and you're probably safer in your office to give them some form of oral agent um you can choose a route i know that in 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 the world of general practice that a lot of im inject injections are used um, in my practice, I tend to shy away from IM injections, partly because most of the injections are supposed to be intramuscular, and we have a population that's, um, you know, you probably more than likely end up with an intra-fat injection yes. in a lot of instances. It sounds, it sounds, I know, odd, but it's actually true. Um, so the patients will come back later on and they say, doc, you know, I got an injection at the hospital. This is the one I get quite common. And now I have a lump. Uh, and what it is, is the injection has been put into the fat and it causes fat necrosis. Um, very, very common. And a lot of times the hospital that gives them, because if you go to the emergency room, most more emergency rooms, you get an intramuscular injection. That's the standard write up for the, 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 person in the emergency room to, to give to the nurses to, to have the person um, get some pain relief. And, you know, it's the other standard thing. You, you go to the emergency room, you're going to get an IV put up and they're going to put in some fluids while you wait until they can triage you and get you sorted out. Um, so quite often you hear that the pain was so bad that I needed an IM injection. And in my experience, I've found that just the use of cocktails and oral medication, because you you know, if you think about onset of action of say something a drug like cataflam, then you're talking about somewhere between seven and you know fifteen minutes. Um, that's you know not really that much different from an intramuscular injection. Yes. Um, you know, and you you start then talking about what's the duration of action, which one gives you a longer duration of action. So. I don't use as much intramuscular injections. I do do some um, what I call near facet injections, 
And if patients are having some amount of spasm and they have a, what we call a trigger point, I will do a trigger point injection. But anytime you're utilizing the needle anywhere around the, the spinal column, you have to know your anatomy pretty well so you don't end up causing more harm than good. That's, that's I think, the safest thing to say. And I think most people who are treating um, back pain, if you have an interest in back pain and you're interested and you can make the time, most people are willing to teach and show. Um, it's just a matter now of, of the coordinating of the time. If you can make avail yourself when these things are occurring and you know you do some background. This is where I strongly think the continual medical education comes in. Um, and and it, it, it makes sense to have courses and hands-on courses. I think we are not yet scratching the surface of pain medicine in Jamaica. Um, just because the wealth of disease that exists out there and not everyone is going to come to surgery. So pain medicine really is the mainstay. So when you start someone off on oral medications or if you even give an injectable, you have initiated the, the, the frontline management, which is pain management. That's, that's exactly right. what you're doing. Yes, when somebody says they're doing pain management as a specialist, it's just because those modalities now have failed or the person has moved from what we call acute pain into chronic pain and you now have to address chronic pain in a slightly different way. I see. You know, we, we should say something here. Well, I, I would say that I, I had asked you about, about these topical, even branded agents, which I must have very, very popular up to, I'd say, even a few days ago, I got a new one. This was a spring, a spring on thing, a generic company. I think it was a combination thing. And the essence of what I'm going to say is that I really, when we're training, we're told they don't work. And I, I tried to, so what I had been doing before we had this our discussion was I would just go to the ones that have the painkiller in it. So some would have IC, well, I think there's one called IC heart or not to, you know, No, certainly. Mention. I mean, in this forum, in this forum, it's okay for you to mention a, a branded product. So yes, there's icy hot and there's the um the other one that was very popular, the one that was blue. Um usually came in a white container. Um the name eludes me. But when you look at the active ingredient in most of these topicals, it's actually mental. Right. It's 95% mental and the rest of it is coloring and dye. So we know that doesn't actually create any lasting relief. But patients get symptomatic relief from it. Um, and the other thing is all the topicals with the Emugel, Voltar and Emugel or whatever topical that you put. And people say, well, it works. And a physical therapist would tell me, well, they would use the ultrasound probe and drive the, 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 the drug into the tissues, deep into the right. tissues. And they call it iontophoresis. And, you know, they've done studies to detect that it works. And I've always said, well, guess what? If I give someone an oral agent, the concentration of the active ingredient is going to be much higher at the site that I want it to work than if you try to put it on topically. Mm -hmm. And um, it's 
it's, it, it comes back to just basic physiology. The, the largest organ in the human body is skin. So if you put something topical, the skin, if you do even get it to absorb it, it's just going to distribute it to the circulatory system. It's going to have to get into the circulatory system. And so it's it's going to be at such a low concentration versus if you take it orally or injectable parenterally that it doesn't make sense. There was a time in my early um years as a consultant where I would prescribe to the populace. In other words, the Jamaican population expected a topical and I would offer a topical on the prescription. Um, But as the years have worn on, and I guess I've become a little bit more cynical, I no longer do this. And I told them, I I tell my patients, look, a topical agent is really not going to work. If you really want adequate relief, then and you know, the prescription medication will help you best. However, feel free to buy anything over the counter that you think may assist you. Um, and this works especially for like patients with arthritic knees. Um, they've done some studies and they've shown like one or two agents, agents that contain capsaicin have some very weak analgesic effect. So if you want, you can incorporate that. But really and truly, topicals do not work in the way that we think they work. And if a topical is working, it is probably working more in the Eastern way that we Uh are unable to completely speak about because we're not trained in it. But we know from pain and the genesis of pain and the gate theory that you can actually influence the number of signals coming from an area by modulating the, the pattern of that signal. Gotcha. And it can influence how that signal is perceived by the brain. So a topical agent can in some way actually act as that acupuncture needle. I see. I see. But if it is that the actual drug it's going to make a difference because it's absorbed through the skin. I would probably say not. I see. I see. The, we mentioned this pain specialist. I was speaking to Neville Balin recently in this uh, similar forum, and uh, particularly about medical marijuana, CBDs, and he really is a proponent of it, and he's seen positive results impact. What Do you have any views on that, that class? or? So, you know, in, in its infancy of, of medical marijuana, um, I, I, I had a couple before it became as mainstream as it is now. Um, there are a couple of general practitioners who were telling me about it and stuff like that. Again, I did not have the experience with it. And I still don't have the experience with it. And um, it's a treatment option. Certainly not the first um, component that I would recommend. In the earlier days, they had some um, issues with the whole pharmacology of actually procuring it. So, you know, sometimes a drug would settle. And um, there are patients who have had some problems with taking a too high of a dose. That's what I would say. I tend to stay away from it. Um 
and I'll leave that to the pain medicine specialists if they need to incorporate that. Um, a lot of the pain that I end up treating is both acute pain and chronic pain, but the chronic pain tends to be more on a degenerative basis. Um, a lot of times when you start going towards things like medical marijuana, I think you've kind of entered into the pain of um, palliation. People who have secondaries to bone, you know, you're really trying to, to use actual narcotics now, not mm. narcotic analogs. And you're trying to lessen the side effects of your narcotics. And this is where I think some of that uh, medical marijuana comes in. But that, again, this is my opinion. Mm. Um, but I would say in my practice, it's not a front line or a first line. And if I think it needs to be incorporated, I would discuss it with a pain medicine specialist. The, I have a few more questions. I don't know we're it's going to turn out late here. The, you mentioned something earlier about osteo versus rheumatoid arthritis. Do if the patient has and confirmed to use that example, rheumatoid arthritis, do you keep them in your practice or do you? Send on to rheumatology. So, so I always incorporate <laughs> rheumatologists, but I never ever quite discharge a patient. And there, there are several reasons for that. There is an overlap, and rheumatologists and orthopedic surgeons usually have a, a relationship, you know, and we refer back and forth to each other um, within the course of a patient's lifetime. Now, um, unfortunately, we do not have a lot of rheumatologists in Jamaica. And sometimes the rheumatologist will give the patient a date for follow-up. Sometimes it's three, four months, sometimes six months. But in between that time, they end up with a flare or they're having a, a breakthrough pain issue and they return to, to you, the orthopedic surgeon. Um, and their appointment for the rheumatologist is three, four months out. And they, don't, they can't get an earlier one. So you end up doing a lot of actual intervention for the patient on the patient's behalf. Sometimes you guide them on how to, um, or you instruct them on how to change their steroid dose or incorporate another drug, whether it be short term. Sometimes it involves local infiltration of a steroid into a joint or into a region. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times we will see, and I'm going to change from the saying strictly rheumatoid arthritis mm -hmm. and call it inflammatory arthritis, yes. okay. which mm -hmm. is probably a bigger, more blanket term. And so sometimes when we examine the patient, they will have an SI joint pathology. And it, I would think that one of the mainstays of diagnosing SI joint pathology and therapeutic is the injection of a steroid into the SI joint, yes. which ideally should be imaged. The other modalities of making that diagnosis, which include plain x-rays and MRIs, really wholly do not represent SI joint joint pain and pathology in the way that they should. And so you end up with a lot of false negative reporting. MRI is normal, but the patient does have pain. That's coming from the SI joint. I see. Okay. Well, I think we have run very late here, Doctor. I can't thank you enough. But I like to ask everybody this. I think we have to follow because I have too many questions written down here, but the so my final question here is our healthcare system is wonderful in terms of brain point my view doctors nurses 
you know, others involved. However, it is still wanting in, in well, this is my personal opinion. And I, I wonder if, what are your thoughts as to how we could improve what we're doing here locally in terms of healthcare? And this can be to your area or generally or both. You know, Ryan, I think that's, you, you've probably asked, you know, I don't want to say if you asked the wrong question, but, you know, you, you're, you're speaking to someone who is a little bit passionate about um, ongoing medical education. And actually, I'm one of these people, as you know, through our years of interaction, I'm someone who happily and freely discusses issues and problems, um, trying to keep at focus or in focus the patient as this, the central reason why we're gathered. And I think that we're doing a very poor job um, at our continuing medical education. Um, I do think we have had some, 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 I would say, quality control issues at the primary part of, of our graduation, of our, our doctors in primary care. Um, I think there has been a failure on parts of doctors who are in charge in the health institutions in ensuring adequate exposure and training to some of the people who will form the bulk of our general practitioners. I say this without any kind of um, malice, but a lot of systems have fallen apart um, in Jamaica, and we are seeing and reaping the effects of them now. And so the question is, how do we change? How do we get back on course? Um, and I think it really um, behoves us to get back on course. And, you know, one of the problems with a lot of the, the, the conferences that people attend, and I said this to my own society as well, when we have an orthopedic conference, what is the target population? <laughs> and this is something that's been very poorly defined. So when a speaker comes up and he's speaking about a topic, is this something that's geared towards an orthopedic surgeon or is it geared towards a general practitioner? Mm -hmm. And I think um, as a disservice to our people in general practice, far too often our talks are geared not to that audience, but they have been forced to enter that environment in, in seeking CMU credits. And they can sometimes come away feeling very confused. Are they the ones who are supposed to be doing this? And actually, at what point were they really expected to refer? So I think we have some, we have some room for improvement in what we're doing currently. Um, I think we need to not think that we have all the solutions and recognize there's a long way for us to go. So you would, you would attack it from, sorry to interrupt you, you would attack it from that standpoint. You try to improve the CMEs and try to get you know, the people that have to enter or want to enter family practice, make sure they're adequately trained. So I think, I think training is, 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 is paramount in what we're doing. 
um, it has to be, or the opportunity for the person to have exposure to ongoing medical training. One of the things that I admire about the United States, despite their medicine being very commercial, is the ability for me to take up on any given weekend and go and find a course that will improve my skills, my knowledge, and what I'm able to deliver to my patients come Monday morning without shutting down my whole practice for three months, which most people don't have the ability to do. So you could then decide that you need to improve yourself in, say, rheumatology and do a little mini fellowship in rheumatology over the course of three or four weekends. You can find that, whether it be online or some kind of hands-on environment for continual medical education. And that's the part where I think we should be focused on in Jamaica um, to improve the skill sets of our practicing physicians. It's an interesting answer. You're one of the only people that has said this exclusively. Everybody has told me they need to throw money at it and we need to, we need resources and we need not being, you know, to be frank, I mean, it's an interesting way because if you have better equipped primary healthcare to use that as an example, you will have a, a healthier population because presumably you would pick up earlier, better, faster, and there'll be less referring, less packing off to use the public system and improvement generally. So if you if you attack it from that standpoint, it's something I never thought about at all, really. You know, everybody's it's giving different answers about. And which which are relevant as well, increasing the healthcare budget, that is, and uh, increase the per capita spending, which various answers to that effect. But you know, you are the only person that really put that on the table, which uh, is an interesting, a very interesting thought. I really, I genuinely wonder if that, that and I never really thought of it like that at all. So that. Well, I suppose then in that way you wouldn't you as uh, a specialist you wouldn't you would perhaps get less, but you'd still get a certain amount of patients. But maybe so 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 that's the key point, Brian. I still see a lot in my practice patients that are coming and requiring primary workup. Ah, gotcha as opposed to truly in a specialist practice where when you see someone, they have been worked up and now we're discussing really where my training excels. What are your surgical options? What are your treatment options of which include surgery? But because of a gap, a lot of the practice ends up going back to the primary component of discerning and treatment. The next time we get together and talk, I will I'll offer you a, an algorithm on the treatment of back pain. Um, I've done a couple of talks. I have a couple of PowerPoint talks. I just need to go and pull the slide. Yes. Yes. Um, and it shows you the point at which where you start offering what we call secondary or tertiary care gotcha. after you've exhausted what you should do on a primary level. I see. I see. Well, I, I, and I will. I will also make available to you. There's something called it, like a, I think it's a 10 minute back pain assessment plan. Mm. 
Um, you know, a very good resource um, is the American physician. I think American Journal of Physicians. Yes. Or yeah. American Family Practice. Family, um, right. And, and they, they take topics like this, and they actually do a pretty good summary um, of the, the, the way that you should approach it. And at the end of the day, when this, this subset of patient comes in, it's an easy thing to refer back to. These are the steps that I should do. This is what I should do as a general practitioner, mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. primary care doctor. And when these things have been done and still have a patient who doesn't kind of quite fit or is not getting better, that's the time mm-hmm. to, to consider your referral. 